If you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to be going verses 1 through 10. And I'll just read it and then we'll pray and, and get into it. If you feel like standing for in reverence to the word, go ahead. If you want to sit, it's entirely up to you. But it says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Lord God, you are magnificent. You, you give us so much in your word. It's a living word. Lord, it has deep, deep meaning for us. And at times we have to seek your face and find what is in that word that you're giving us. And, and at other term, times, it is so direct and piercing to our heart. All of it, Lord, we love as we love you, uh, as it is you. Uh, Lord, I, I pray this morning that, that just that, that I would be able to convey what this passage is about, that everybody in this room would have a clear understanding of the meaning for them that it has, and that we would let the Spirit guide us, both my lips and your ears, uh, to the full truth of the Word. In the name of Jesus, amen. So what's this passage all about? Well, we've got 10 verses totaling 47.6% of chapter 5. It's in two paragraphs, eight sentences, four in each paragraph, 225 words. I counted every one of them and somebody might be able to prove me wrong. Seven commas, one dash. Christ is explicitly mentioned once, God twice, Spirit once, Lord twice, heavens or heavenly twice, faith once, and home four times. What a bunch of junk and effort that was. <laughs> that is not what it's all about. That's what it is, but it's not what it's all about. And I'm sorry if I threw that at you. What is it about? When you go looking at God's word, look for the life, not for the words. Those are our words. The Wolof language has their words. God bless the... Oh, Marilyn's such a dedicated servant. It's about two dwellings. And those dwellings are our bodies. 
physical bodies. It's about encouragement. It's about assurance. It's about God's goodness. It's about gratitude. It's about judgment and mercy. And the foundation, thank you for that song, Caleb, that we ended with, at the foundation is the cross. And I have, uh, a, because this, this whole series um, is, is titled Testimony of the Cross, I, I just wanted to talk about the cross a little bit, not directly from this passage, but I just felt the Spirit leading me to say, what about the cross? And, you know, we have this cross, this one behind me, that it's a fine cross, it's, it is what it is. Jesus isn't on it. Jesus was on it, not that one. But there was one that Jesus was on. It's a symbol of our Christianity. It's like our flag, so to speak. And you might have the fish was an earlier symbol. And symbols are good. It, it points us to where, um, kind of points us to that foundation of our beliefs. Uh, but when you think about that, the cross, the very cross that Jesus hung on, and this is going to get kind of graphic, so if it's going to be too much for somebody in the room, take them in another room for a little while, because what happened on that cross was graphic. You know, that cross has blood on it. It's got blood from where his hands were pierced and he was being nailed to that cross. So each arm of that cross, there are blood stains on that original cross. And his feet... So at the bottom of that cross, there are blood stains there. I don't know if he was sweating through that ordeal. I imagine I would be. So, you know, the sweat of our Savior, Jesus Christ, is on that cross. And when they pierced his side, the, the fluids that came out would have run down his body and, and onto that cross, probably all the way to the ground. I mean, it's just horrific in my mind. And the suffering is apparent from the stains that were left. Why did he have to die such a horrendous death? Lethal injection would have still been paying the death or paying the penalty of sin, which is death. But God went to an extreme. I mean, he was flogged. His back was laid bare. So probably blood and some version of the healing and the oozing that happens in healing was already started. And that stain is on that cross. And the only answer I could come up with is that sin is so horrendous to God that when Jesus paid the price for it, the death had to be horrendous. If, if you've ever seen the, the movie, The Passion of Christ, that was the toughest part for me. I literally cried during that movie in the theater, thinking, oh, I had something to do with that pain that he suffered. But at the same time, God is good and well, I caused, in my way, Christ to be on that cross. Christ being on that cross saved me. 
and let me have a union with God. There's the testimony of the cross. And that's not necessarily what this passage is about. It's just the foundation of the passage. The Christian's aim is to please Christ, or the Christian's aim to please Christ is motivated by the ramifications of the cross. Say it again. The Christian's aim to please Christ is motivated by the ramifications of the cross. The cross motivates Christians to please Christ. We are designed to please God. And that's what this passage is going to hopefully inform us. We'll break it up a few ways. And in the first section, we'll talk about what it is in this passage that we can appreciate. And there's a lot. Uh, There's a couple of dwellings mentioned. I I said that. The, The two are... We've got an earthly home. And this earthly home is this body, this flesh that I'm in right now, that all of you are in right now. And the second dwelling is the heavenly house. It's expressed in the passage, the the first one, if you'll notice the words, it's, it's a tent, a temporary. Paul was a tent maker. I'm not surprised he used this. God's not a tent maker. He's a building maker. He's a a contractor extraordinaire. His house that he builds for us is from heaven. It's permanent. It's a building from God. It's a better home. And we exchange homes. We, We look forward to moving. And we look forward to moving because the the issues with the temporary home is that we groan in it. It's mentioned twice. Um, In verse 2, we groan longing to put on the second home. But in verse 4, it says that we groan being burdened. This groaning is a Greek word, um, stenazo. And it's the same idea that all of creation groans since giving or since childbirth to today i mean creation isn't the sinner out there but it also groans because of sin and the word in that one is system also but it's it's pretty much the same except full system uh, so it's it's the idea of this this degrading this this spiral downward that that our bodies have to go through I know one of the groanings that I do is if I have to tie my shoes, I got to get back up. <laughs> and and it's, I was talking with Tim. It's it's when you're preparing a sermon, you're 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 deep into the passage. You're kind of finding all these meanings, and and everywhere you go, you see an illustration. And and I like playing golf. I I was on the tenth. Um, putting surface, and I already made my putt and was getting ready to come off, but there was, in our group, that somebody was, I mean, they really wanted this putt. I mean, they were, it was going to be a birdie, it was going to be a magnificent hole to do it on, they're lining it up, they're really putting a lot of effort into it. And he he made a stroke, and I mean, it's perfect, that thing's heading right for the hole. Last minute, it peels off, doesn't make it, and what happened? 
Oh, everybody on that green groaned. But the difference is, he went on to the 11th hole, and he made his drive, and for all I know, it didn't go where he wanted. He probably groaned again, but I can guarantee you, if you go to the golf course and just pay attention, there is groaning going on all over the place. And yet they continue on as though groaning is their, I want to groan, I'm going to go play golf. (laughs) This is a different kind of groan. This is a groan that we can't do anything about it. We're only left with groaning. You know, we're, we're being burdened. I think that's the one that probably strikes more to me about defining the groan, groaning. Um, we're being burdened by, by the weight of life. You know, the presence of sin is still there. And when we commit the sin, hopefully we're really fast to repent. But nonetheless, I have, I will sin. And kind of like that golfer, I I hope every time I sin, it would become audible, that I would groan audibly, recognizing in the world with me that I just sinned and I don't like it and I don't want to do it again. And all those people who heard me groan, I hope they help me not do it again. Then there's the groaning of longing to put on the next body. Longing to be in the next body is, a, is a, to me, a whole different kind of groan. It's, it's one that does have a future. It's one that we don't have to think, this is the life that I'm stuck in. I am as long as I'm in this body, but when I'm in that next body, there is no sin to groan about. There is no sin even present. There are no temptations. This magnificent next dwelling Oh, how I wish I could be in it. That oh, how I wish would be the, the kind of groaning. The, the groaning as though a, um, being burdened or, or having a weight on you. I think of my house. And, and when the wind is strong or the storms are strong, you can hear the creaking and cracking of the timbers that are the, the basis of the house. And to me, that's the kind of groaning that is happening to that house. Nothing that house can do about it. It just has to be firm. And fortunately, this letter being written to Christians, it's not a bad house that we're in. I mean, we yes, we groan, we long for the next one, but it's not a bad place to be. And why is it not a bad place to be? It's because we have the Spirit. In verse 5, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. We exchange homes when we die. And that's guaranteed by the Spirit. The better home, or the next home is better, built by God and guaranteed by the Spirit. You're ready for the move. God is preparing you for that move. He's doing the packing, and he's doing the moving, and he's got the, the Mayflower truck or whatever moving truck you've seen. It's all by his hand that it's happening, and he's guaranteeing us this by the Spirit. 
It's the salvation, sanctification, glorification story. And, and I've heard salvation differently, but if you had a timeline of your life, it's like, okay, you're in this sin, but then you've got this, I call it sanctification. You've got this moment of belief in Christ, and it's, it's kind of momentary. It sticks with you, but it's, it happens all of a sudden. And then there's the sanctification period. Fortunately for the sanctification, we have the Spirit in us already, so we can understand what's happening, and the Spirit can guide us through the sanctification. And it'll be from that, from that new birth all the way to the death of this flesh. That'll be the sanctification period. And then will come the glorification. And that is when our body enters the new home. And one of the things that I think verse 4, the, the wording gets a little kind of dicey, but not really. And just repeat it again. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And this whole clothed and then the new clothes, it's kind of like I got this really nice suit on. Be happy with the body you're in but then I'm going to add a, a fur coat to it and you're going to be really styling and that'll be the new body. You, you don't have to be depressed that you're in this body. Being a Christian, having the indwelling spirit, it really is a good body. Just the next one's better, but this is a good one. So don't look down on this body. Be thankful that God has given you the spirit in it so that it can live differently. I'm going to read kind of long from Romans 8, 1 through 12. So it's pretty long, but, but it really just nails what this spirit is about and doing and why this body, not just the next one, is a good one. There is therefore no condemnation from those, or for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. And what does that mean? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his, son, <clears throat> sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live in according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies 
through his spirit who dwells in you. So that next body that I said is eternal, this body is the beginning of that eternity when it's got the spirit in it, when you're a believer in Christ. And then we have the goodness of God. Even though, you know, I had fun with that piece of paper that I threw away and said, that's not how you look at the Bible. One of the things that probably is kind of good in what I wrote in there was I was looking at certain words, how many times do they appear? When something is repeated frequently, it's not necessarily what the verse is about, the fact that they're repeated, but it does give you an indicator that I might want to pay attention to this. You know, this, this goodness word, good courage, shows up in verse 6 and 8. So you, you start asking yourself, what is good courage? Um, I thought it was neat, because I looked up the word courage thinking, well, I'm going to talk about courage a little bit. I better know what it is. So I pulled out my phone and I just typed in courage and looked for the definition. And a really cool thing happened. It gave me the definition of courage, which is something along the lines of willing to go to, to any extent for something that you really, really believe in. So if you really, really believe in your kids and one of them's on the train tracks, you'll jump in front of that train to save your kid. And somebody's going to call that courage. It, it, it probably is. But here's the cool thing that happened on my phone. Right below the definition of courage, the next thing down was... Biblical courage. Or, no, I'm sorry. Um, I had looked up good courage. The next thing down was biblical good courage. Well, it's on the phone that way. I, maybe it's because I'm about the only thing I use my phone for. If you've tried to call me, you know I don't answer it. <laughs> what I do use it for, though, frequently, is to look up things to help me through sermons or whatever. Or I'll, I'll find something and I... I want to say, well, you know, where else is that in the Bible? Phone's a good source. So it's got its problems, but it's got its good things too. Um, but, but it got me into the definition of good, not just courage, but good being things that are from God. And it works. I mean, you think through all the things that are truly good, and biblically speaking, the good things are the things that are coming from God. So when you have a a good dwelling, which I would argue the first dwelling, this temporary one for a Christian housing the Spirit, is a good one. The second dwelling, eternal, I mean, there is nothing wrong with the second one. There, literally, nothing is wrong in the second body. And it's from heaven, it's from God. It's a good thing. The courage to go on when you're weighted down with the burden or you're longing for the next body. It takes courage to move on. And it's good courage because God's giving you the ways to get there. He's supporting you while it's happening. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel's having a tough day. He just thinks he can't go on anymore. And an angel is sent to him. And the angel is sent to him to give him peace, strength, and good courage. 1019, if you want to look it up later. And there was that good courage word again. 
And then Daniel tells the angel that you have given me peace. You have given me strength. doesn't mention that he has, you have given me good courage. No, he doesn't have to, but he has the courage to go on and continue to prophesy, get out of his doldrums. And that messenger was from heaven, making that good courage. And in this, the second good courage, the first good courage is that we are always of good courage. We know that we're at home and we have another homecoming. And then verse 8 says, yes, we are of good courage. Because we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That courageousness is that we walk by faith not by sight. So just as Daniel was encouraged through this deliverance of an angel, a word from God to, to keep him going, we have our faith, not our sight. We're not walking around with the eyes of just this body. We're not walking by that sight. We're walking by faith. The faith of the, the body to come, so to speak. Well, not just so to speak, it, that's what it is. And it's interesting, the very last uh, verse last week that Tim was covering included really the same kind of story. We had this, this clay pot, uh, kind of temporary home notion, and we had this um, exhortation to be in that body with thanksgiving, and here we're having this goodness that we can appreciate and then it says in the last verse, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It's almost telling the same story again. And, and it is one letter to the Corinthians, not divided up by, by chapters and that sort of thing. So the thought that Paul was going through is continuing into this eternal home notion and for us to be thankful, us to have gratitude for these this goodness of God that's coming at us. So yes, good courage, a preferred home. All of it says to appreciate all that the cross has given you. Because none of this was going to happen without the cross, without Jesus saving us. And don't appreciate just the what it has given but appreciate what it will give. Because I said, Christ isn't on that cross anymore. But the ramifications of him being on that cross are eternal. Truly, not just until I die, but the ramifications are eternal. Because it will give you this union with God that is forever And then comes along the big verse, verse 9, the pastor's pal. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And you might wonder him, who him is, in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So I would argue that the him is Christ. You might argue that the him is talking about God. And as my wife said, you can't separate them. So, yes, we're both right. Um, but the, the bigger deal 
over the him is we make it our aim to please him. You don't have very many verses in the Bible that can be preached or that you're going to read along and saying, there is my life goal. Pick out a single verse and say, yep, that's it. That's my life goal. That's what I'm all about. I said this passage is about purpose. There is my purpose. My purpose, my aim, my goal is to please Him. How do you do that? Well, the notion is simple. Doing it is hard. It's an easy concept. I want to please Him. Why do I want to please Him? Because I'm grateful for everything that He's done. I'm grateful for His goodness. I'm grateful for these houses that He puts me in. What's that? Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. If you really want to compliment somebody, if you want to make them feel good, imitate them. So if, if you want to please Christ, imitate him. Be like him. And that would be really, really hard to do if not for him. He will do it in you. Let him. Submit to him. You certainly don't want to submit to yourself. You will mess it up because that's how we're built. But submitting to him and letting him guide your life, I don't know how you can get it wrong because he is never wrong. Well, I know how you can get it wrong. You'll misunderstand him. You'll succumb to... uh, Uh, temptation, and then you'll quickly run to the cross and ask forgiveness. Just your repentance would be satisfying enough for him. It would be a step toward pleasing him. Yes, I've sinned. I admit it, Lord, and I want your forgiveness that you offered that one time for all. I'm sorry, and then you don't do it again. That would be super pleasing to him. The act of contrition is pleasing to him. Knowing that the Father's plan, which Jesus always did, the Father's plan, is pleasing to him, live according to the plan. You know, sin isn't part of the plan. You can spend the rest of your life being sanctified. I hope you are. That's what you should be doing. That should be an effort. And that sanctifying process led by God, guided by the Spirit, when you submit to it, is going to be pleasing to Him. It's a massive verse. 2 Corinthians 5.9 So whether we are at home or away, Temporary, eternal. We aim to please him. So think about that for a second. I get the part about trying to live in a way that is pleasing to God, pleasing to Christ. But what does that look like in heaven? When you're not going to have any more temptations, sin isn't present, you will be just washed white as snow 
your, your aim isn't going to change. Your aim is to please him, whether at home or away. I mean, it's just a really cool thought. And I, I think of images like um, bowing at the knee, praising him all day long, worshiping him without ceasing. I mean, we're instructed to pray without ceasing. What, what does worshiping without ceasing look like? Does it mean we don't even sleep? All we have is worshiping the Lord, praising him continuously. I mean, that's really exciting stuff to me. Yeah, amen, double amens. And then, and then comes verse 10. And it, it doesn't seem to fit. We, we have all this really, really good stuff. You know, the goodness of God is there and present. We have all these, these positive motivators to be imitators of Christ, to please Him. And then comes verse 10. For we must all sit at the mercy seat of Christ. What's the say? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Not only that, but so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. And I'm talking about this body. Whether good or evil. Like, man, carrot or a stick. If you don't know the expression... You could dangle a carrot in front of a donkey and if it's hooked up to your cart, your cart's going to move because that donkey's going to be chasing that delicious-looking, juicy carrot. It's what donkeys like most. And if you don't believe me, go take a carrot to a donkey. Get ready to run. If you have another one in your pocket, empty it because running's not going to do any good. He's going to go for the one in your pocket. They love carrots. They love the motivation of something that is delicious looking so they're going to keep on moving but every once in a while you get a donkey that doesn't like a carrot and just stands there and looks at it and you're thinking come on donkey let's go we've got to move we've got to move and it doesn't care it doesn't care about the positive motivations you know what you do you hit them with a stick isn't that cruel you just you whack them you don't have to hit them really hard but you got to get his attention and so you whack them on the hindquarters and he doesn't like it. It's like, ow, and the cart moved. Hey, so you whack him again. Hey, cart moved again. And you keep whacking him until the, and the cart keeps going. And, and eventually he says, stop hitting me, I'll go. You know, I'll just move along without the, the punishment side of it. That's the stick. Okay, so is it that the first eight verses are all the goodness of God and all the things that motivate you in a positive way to uh, aim to please Him? Well, that'd be the carrot side. But is this judgment seat the stick side? That doesn't, that doesn't bode well with me. How can that be? That, is, that does not seem like God. Not for a Christian, anyway. And that's the secret. For the Christian... It's not a stick because there's no punishment. The stick isn't there. You've got the carrot or the carrot. I mean, you really think about that. Being at the judgment seat of Christ, what happens there? Mercy. Mercy, to me, 
is something to have more gratitude for than any of the other stuff. It's a bigger carrot. It's such a lovely thing to not get what I deserve is amazing to me. I'm, I, if I don't get what I deserve from my wife, I can totally appreciate that. How much am I going to appreciate not getting what I deserve from God? That, that horrible image of the cross, that's what I would end up with. Sorry, honey, that doesn't even compare to anything you've got, so don't bother next time. Um, I'll probably get her for that. Heaven is very fair. You know, in our legal system, we have um, the notion of double jeopardy. You're not going to be tried for the same crime twice. You get tried for it once, you go to prison for five years, and, and you've done your time and you're let out. The day you're let out, they don't retry you. They can't. It's, it's against our legal system to do that, so therefore you don't have to go through a, a second punishment for the same thing. Fortunately for us, God is that way also. In fact, we probably designed our system after that simple law. So when Christ paid that penalty on the cross, there is no double jeopardy. It's not going to have to be paid for again. That's the mercy. That's the carrot that's in verse 10. But also fair, God's not going to totally let you off the hook. It's not going to punish you, but you're going to sit in that judgment seat. You're going to have to give an account for all that you've done in the body, whether good or evil. You're going to have to sit there and admit to Jesus the things that, I'll even say, you knew were wrong. You're going to have to, I don't know exactly how it looks like. I don't think you're necessarily going to have to sit there and confess your sins, but it's kind of the notion that, yeah, whether good or evil, hopefully you got a lot more time to talk about the good than the time that you're going to have to spend talking about the evil. But you do have to do that. And it sure seems to me that you don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the evil. You got Jesus for, you know, I don't know, hopefully it's one of those, that is an eternity to God, that you're going to feel like, oh, we just took a moment to go through that. Or you're really going to have to go through one by one all the things that you've done in the flesh that were evil. But it doesn't say you're just going to account for the evil things. You're going to account for the good or evil. So you can account for the good things. I hope you've got 15,000 really good things and then you've got to talk about this sin that you committed. And then you go back to 15,000 more good things. And those 15,000, then 30, then 45,000, and on and on and on are going to be all the things that you were following Christ because he doesn't have evil in him. So we don't fear the judgment. There is no stick and carrot. There's only carrots. And there's only more appreciation of the cross. 
Verse 9, aiming to please him, is what you end your sermon on if you're a preacher. It's what it's all about. So that's what I'm going to do. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we pray that stuck in our minds eternally, not just in the flesh but in the next body as well, is the idea that we want to please you. You're a good God. You came to earth in flesh, not with sin, but for sin, to die for our sake, for our salvation. And Lord, if you only died, it would be such a tragedy. But you didn't just die. You rose again in life to be seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And we raise with you. We raise from our sins as you raise from our sins to live a life that while we're in the flesh, will have its mistakes, but it will have its good. And we pray that you will guide us through the goodness far more than you will get, out of, get us out of the traps of temptations. Lord, as temptations come, let us look to you. As temptations come, let us be imitators of Jesus. Let the Spirit well up in us and not have any room in our body because of that wellness, to even allow sin in. Lord, you're big, you're good, and you can do this for us. I, I'm just awed by how big you are, and I pray that your bigness and your goodness will be those motivators to live in a life pleasing to you. Amen.